Something we talk about a lot here at Dad Saves America is the fear industrial complex. Everywhere we look, we're bombarded by nefarious news, scary statistics, and fearful so-called facts. We're constantly told about this or that consensus and to trust the science when the underlying data rarely matches the apocalyptic rhetoric we hear in our culture. Common sense tells us that we don't make the best decisions when we're scared, and psychologists agree. Nobel Prize-winning researchers Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky published a famous paper in 1984 which found that people consistently put more weight on the negative than the positive when making decisions. So if our decision-making is naturally skewed towards the negative, how do we overcome that? After all, as parents, every decision we make affects not only us, but our kids as well. Well, my guest today, Carlos Carvajo, is a professor of statistics at the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas. He specializes in the proper uses and limits of data. It's a terrifying thing to be a parent and trying to navigate, what should I do? And if the authorities out there are telling you, you should do this, the science says do this, science says do that, right? But every decision that you make with your kid, it's gonna be most likely a function of the unique situation that you're facing. Carlos's work can arm us and our kids with the tools we need to navigate an information landscape dominated by the fear industrial complex and ultimately better understand the world around us. Carlos, welcome to Dad Saves America. Pleasure to be here. We met because you work at UT and I'm here in Austin and you run a research center called the Salem Center. So tell me about the Salem Center. What is it that you do at the organization and then you know, how does it fit within the University of Texas? So the Salem Center is a, a unit, a little group that tries to focus on the idea of trade-offs. My t-shirt here that speaks to it, where we try to provide our students with a framework from which to think about ideas, particularly in the realm of public policy, and try to understand them from the lenses of economics and data. So what do I mean by that? Understanding that when you're trying to make a decision in the, in the world of public policy, you might face some competing interests and trade-offs that you need to evaluate. And hopefully there's data, there's some information in the world, some evidence that allows you to weigh those things and try to come up with a more informed scientific, quote unquote, decision associated with that. It turns out that's something that sounds very obvious from the perspective of right. that's what we should be doing. <laughs> and yet it's something that is often not presented to students in a very organized fashion. And what we try to do is to create mechanisms and pathways for students to be exposed to that. So we do lots of different things from classes to events to research projects and so on and try to get students to participate in all those different things. So m one role I play as like resident dad here right. is to ask like the questions that like if my son is thinking about pursuing your, your path. What is statistics? Why would you want to study that? In a very sh simple term, what statistics is, is our ability to observe the world and summarize it. What do I mean by observing the world? Well, observe things that we can quantify in the world, things we can measure, quantify, and then hopefully summarize in educated ways to help buzz whether make decisions, come up with conclusions, and those are the main two things that we do with statistics. So, sounds simple, right? Like, well, you look at the world and you, mm -hmm. I want to understand how effective is a certain crop strategy that I have to grow corn over here. The reason I'm using this example is because a lot of statistics comes from that, that space of us trying to be better at agriculture. Really? And people starting late in 19th century and early uh, 20th century to 
carefully organize their information about what the, what works or doesn't work when you're trying to you know, grow corn this way or that way or the other way. So you observe, you try to summarize it, you try to say, well, do I have enough evidence to say that this particular strategy was better than that strategy? That's one way in which a lot of statistics come, come about. Okay, so taking that example, I'm a farmer, it's 1890. I have this idea for planting the seeds a little deeper than I normally plant them because it's hot and maybe it'll keep them cooler. So I will divide my field in half and I'll try it on half or maybe on a, th a third or a quarter of the land because maybe this will fail and then do the rest the way I've always been doing it. Right. So how does statistics help me know whether or not that worked better. You're already describing something that it's a big step forward of this notion that let me experiment, let me be careful in design. You already have that in your mind because the field of statistics has played a role in your in your education. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in allowing you to think about, oh, I need a case control thing, right? Right, right. A lot so of instead of just done... doing it for the whole field. Exactly. And a lot of people, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm sure there were smart farmers that were figuring that out, that I need to be careful, not do everything. Common sense plays an enormous role here, right? When the formalized field of statistics came about, was making that process more scientific making that process more organized. Experimental design was a huge part of it. That's the technical word for it. Well, and that's the same way that we try to learn whether a certain pill has an effect on a certain disease or not these days. When the FDA is growing to a trial, right, you're doing like a case control study. Or when economists these days will talk about experiments that allow us to understand the effect of policies, same idea. We're gonna try to design an experiment to try to you know, do two different conditions or multiple different conditions and try to adjudicate whether or not the data provides us enough evidence to support one hypothesis, another hypothesis, or to help us make a decision one way or, or the other. One of the reasons why I was excited to have you on, well, there's, there's several, aside from us being friends. <laughs> one is you teach a class that walks through all these different ways of understanding the world of making decisions, and that's gonna be most of our conversation. Right. It, what I really want to accomplish is share this incredible class in some form with all the people who aren't going to get to be in your class. Right. Because only so many people are going to get to be in your class. The other thing is our kids today, more than ever before, are bombarded by data and information. Mm -hmm. So they have these devices and they have essentially all the world's information at their fingertips. And it feels like as parents, nobody equips us to help our kids understand how to navigate this world of information that they live in now. And I feel like what you do in your class is a big part of starting that journey. Like, okay, I am told things right. in the media, by politicians, by my by parents, my, by, my, parents, <laughs> by my friends, by my kindergarten or grade school teacher or high school teacher. How do I know if that's true? How do I go through a process to understand it? Can I back up a little please, bit? Just please, just to, to, just again, in the journey, right? Leading economists at Google that a few years ago said, statistics is the sexiest job of the, of the 21st century, something like that. <laughs> Which is like, you know, if you look at statisticians, this sort of picturesque, you know, stereotype <laughs> that you have in your mind is like, wait, uh, <laughs> funny, right? Um, the neckbeard is the new trend. Exactly. The reason for that, and that's what I think also led me to be excited about pursuing a career in that field, was the fact that, yes, this starts from this notion of, of organizer ability to decide how to grow corn, but now data is ubiquitous, it's everywhere. It's, it's just, you know, free to store and tons of computers, right? So the opportunities are enormous and fantastic. So is exciting. It was an exciting field to be part of, and I, I, I cannot, you know, say how awesome it was to be part of that and developing tools on that and becoming a professor in that and 
I mean, the demand for our classes at universities today is still very high as a result of this understanding that having the ability to do meaningful things with data is a necessary component of a modern productive citizen these days. So that's all fun. However, at the same time, when you said, mentioned about kids, right? So here's a paradox. We have all this data, all this information available to us all. And one of the first exercises I do in my class, in my freshman class, this is a freshman class that you're referring to that we teach. Yes. It's called, I think, Trade-Offs, Values, and Data. That's the name of the class. Trade-Offs, Values, and, and Data. data. So we're right there. Back a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> Trade-Offs, Values. <laughs> yes. Which is now a different thing altogether. A different thing altogether. And Data. Yes. Okay. So um, let's start getting into this. So the first thing that I do in that class is to give students a survey about basic facts about the world, things there are unquestionable, things that not, there's no interpretation <laughs> needed, things that are obvious, and they get everything wrong. Everything? Everything, everything wrong. wrong. Everything wrong in predictive ways. What do I mean by that? They get everything wrong by always thinking that things are worse than they are. So these are questions about the state of the world. Okay? So give me some examples. Example. So the two examples that I'm gonna use there, they're, they're thing emblematic of this, this problem, is that one example is, I asked them, what has happened to poverty in the world in the last 20 years? Yes. And it's a multiple choice thing, and I can't remember exactly the details of how I asked them, but it's more like has double, has divided in half, you know, stayed the same or something like that, right? The vast majority of students will answer that poverty has doubled. Or has doubled. Yes. I mean, a very small percentage of students, and I've done this now multiple years in a row. And by the way, I'm not alone doing this. Others have done this. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, I, I get a random sample of 50 students, let's say, coming into UT at a given year, freshmen from all over campus, in the world distribution of intelligence and access to information and wealth, these are people in the top 1%. Right, this is like, from a statistics perspective, yes. right? It's like all of American society exists in the 1% of planet Earth. Yes, So and then I'm, I'm, sampling, and I'm sampling from the, even a further percentage of yeah, that. They're the in college. Got to UT, a good college, right? and are sitting in my class, which is already has some sort of self-selection part of it. It's not a random draw from all the students at UT. Yeah, so this is like an elective class, no. or what's this, how it, does this class end up, how do these kids end up in this class? Every so often, an administrator at a university does something good. Uh, <laughs> rarely, but sometimes they do. And a president, maybe two presidents ago. So you don't include cowardice as being something no, good? No, okay. no, no, just no, wanted to check. No. But about two, two presidents ago, there was a push to create this program called the Signature Course Classes. So the Signature Classes, the idea was to get sort of like accomplished professors exposed students in the early days of UT to take classes from these guys that sometimes are guys or girls that they don't won't see otherwise because they are running their labs and it's just hard. Right? In the beginning of your undergraduate career, yeah. a lot of times you're taking you know, classes with big lecture halls without necessarily being in touch with professors that have big ideas, right? So this program was a program designed to you know, address that. So they, they get, you have, you have to write a proposal for, here's a big idea class, I wanna teach this to freshmen from yep. across the board. So I proposed this class a few years back and, and you know, the class, class has been, been a success, I suppose, and, and that's why I've been teaching for a while. But that class, students come into UT and they, one of the requirements that they have is to take one signature class. Okay. In their freshman year. Oh, so so they how, many, menu. Yeah, how many are, can they choose from at this oh, point? Oh, that must be. I, I mean, mean, it's a huge school. Yeah, it's a huge school. You might have hundreds of those classes being offered every year. So the students come in and they sort of pick, they select a preference. Oh, I would like to maybe this one on Slavic literature or that one and trade-offs, values, and evidence or something. So you already have a bit of a selection of interest there, right? Sure. But then the undergraduate college tries to, it's almost like one of those medical schools matching um, uh, algorithms where they try to get your preferences into account, but they also want to create a, 
um, sort of diverse body of students in the classroom. They don't want only economists to go take my class. <laughs> they, you know, they want to have a... It's just all the business school track yeah, kids. Yeah. yeah, so they want to mix them together in a way to create a, I don't know, a sense of shared fate for, for the students as well. It's a good idea. So How I many get, kids? 50 a year. This okay. year we're going to go to 100, so that's actually a nice, a nice potential um, uh, right. experiment. Okay. I get a range of students from theater majors to, you know, electrical engineers. So that's in the same classroom. Those people check the box, say, oh, that sounds like an interesting class, which mm -hmm. is already, again, furthering, furthering selecting people in that bucket to say, these are people that should know better, <laughs> <laughs> rather than be completely off track about the state of the world. I mean, when we talk about poverty, and there's this sort of absolutely misunderstanding what poverty is, especially coming from the US. The notion that you look outside and you see some bad things, sometimes we do, we do. We're just here yeah. close to you, Austin, where I drove by a homeless camp, right? Yeah. Yeah, those things exist. But you know how much those tents cost, the ones that our homeless are living under right now? Well, in Brazil, where I grew up, those tents are cardboard. And, you know, the levels of poverty are very different. And all that said, the world has been moving away from that you know, in, in a super strong pace for yeah. hundreds of years now. And in particular, in the last 50 years, we have, you know, this huge enrichment of folks from all over the world. So the notion that, that, that students will think that right now, in the last 20 years, in their lifetime, poverty is growing, it's a mind-boggling realization. But poverty has halved in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years. Yes. So look so at the world, there's like, you measure poverty by how many people, let's say under $2 a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. That percentage of people has divided by two. In the Since last the year 2000. Yes. And if you go back further, you know, this is now something that, that I dare say, and this might sound out of context, uh, uh, insensitive, hunger is not an issue in the world anymore. It happens, right now we're in a situation where hunger might come back as a result of the war in Ukraine and, and fertilizer shortages and crops failure, there might be a resulting yeah. of that. But hunger was a, a standard fact of human existence for millennia. Even not that long ago, we had huge episodes of hunger, lack of food and in many continents in the world. That has been mostly solved. Lots of diseases they were able to solve super effectively that reduces poverty as a result of that and so on. And, and, and again, that, that is just not something that is well understood okay. by our students. What else? What else do they come in? So let me and... give you another question. The other question that gives you the other direction. I asked one of the questions I asked is like, you know, what's the prediction for temperature of the earth in the next 100 years? And 100% of them say it warms up, it's gonna warm up. Well, why do I ask that question? And I think that's, that's the right answer. Yes, the prediction is that the world is gonna get warmer probably in the next 100 years, but they know that. So why is that they know that so clearly, so strongly, so confidently, and they don't know about this other thing here that one would argue that is way more important as a piece of knowledge right. about our advance, our sort of progression as a species, right? Those two things matter a lot, but why do they know about one and not the other? I mean, the most obvious answer is they're just bombarded with media messages. I call it the fear industrial complex. So there's this part of your brain that is really well hardwired to be like, that's a dark cave, that's scary, I need to stay out of that cave. Right. And that's how, and the people that were good at doing that stayed alive and that's us. Both of us are maybe, you know, believers of, a, of an emergent order. And like, well, sure, the fact that media takes advantage of that, of that part of our brain and, you know, sells newspapers right. and clickbaits or whatever based on that is understandable. We have to deal with that. But we're talking about educated people that went through a long period of time in classrooms and, you know, books and, and the internet available. All, the, the, again, going back to this miracle yeah. machine that we have in front of us that has all the information in the world. What is your excuse for you not to know these things? What is your excuse for not 
So wait a second, is it that really bad? And, and go find some facts by yourself, right? So that is, to me, such a large failure. Why do I make that a big component of a class that starts in a class that's gonna be thinking about policies and trade-offs? Yeah. Because I say to them that if you are trying to make a change in the world, which a policy is, an interference, say we need to do this, we're gonna do this in order to change yeah. The path that we're in. We need to phase out fossil fuels. For we need example. to phase out fossil fuels, or we need to. What's the latest one? We need to to, to ban cancel all student, guns, ban all guns, or cancel student loans, or wear masks, defund or the police, defund the police, or you know <laughs> the set of meme style Just messages. Pick, pick one, can... pick one, or cut taxes, or you know whatever it is, yeah. whatever it is, right? Any of those choices are choices that are trying to interfere in the world, and you better understand where you are before you make a choice to change, because otherwise you're making a blind decision. You don't know where you are before you. Go forward. I forget who told me this. It's like probably an apocryphal thing, but it, a family is lost. They go to, they, they're in the middle of nowhere. They find a small gas station and they go and there's a map. They roll out the map. It's like, okay, we've got a map. And then they realize that the map is not for the right state. <laughs> so they know what state they're in. They just are nowhere. They're like, well, it's better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you're saying is, well, it's not better than nothing. nothing. If you think that poverty's doubled and it's actually been cut in half, correct? It's worse than nothing. It's worse it's, than nothing. It's, it's, it's what gonna... you know that isn't so. That's yes. the problem. Yes, that's right. Who said that again? And that's, that's a good one. That's right. <laughs> Let's walk through this class now. How do we right, move right. kids from a lot of fear-based, media-based sort of nonsense beliefs to? Grappling so with that. The first, the first mission is to let's go through some facts now. In That Saves America, you had Matt Ridley, which is a great example of somebody that has put together information in a way yeah. that's like, you know, The Rational Optimism is a great read for somebody that if a college student starting out hasn't read that book, that, uh, that's a must read. <laughs> it's yeah. a must read as a starting point. The Enlightenment Now by, by, by Steve Pinker is another one that goes through all these facts of how generally things have trend in a positive way in all sorts of dimensions of human existence, not only poverty measured by sort of dollars, but like, you know, life expectancy, any measure of violence that you might want to think about has gone down. Climate-related disasters, like our resilience in the world that we live in is like- Environmental death. Environmental death, like so- Collapsed. Every, and it's almost like a boring section of the class where, where we call it the progress section of the class where I'm going through it and like, listen, okay, see you again. Like, uh, and I like to joke that today, remember everybody, today is the best day of human existence. And I can, and tomorrow's gonna be better. I see that many times and it gets annoying because you know. And then of course, <laughs> and of course we had COVID in the past two years. So I couldn't, that was not technically right. Then right. I had to add on average, <laughs> today's the best day. Because <laughs> the, the trend continues, even though there's a little dip on the, on, the, is, on the signal, right? Is the phrase on average the first sign that you're dealing with somebody that has some numeracy or yeah. some le level of statistical <laughs> understanding when they, the, that's <laughs> on right. average. The, the caveat is, is an important thing, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the first part is that is try to put in front of them a lot of evidence that is, again, is not subject to interpretation. It's not something that, well, we can look at different. No, there's no other way to look at these hockey sticks graphs that we have. And when I say hockey sticks, you know, if you think about lots of things that we measure from as long as we can possibly get data on humanity, and then you know, circa at 18. Yeah, life expectancy. 1850, boom, and money, boom, everything just goes like yeah. this, right? And then there's sort of this Women's miracle. literacy. Everything. It's one of the questions I ask in my surveys about women's literacy as well for, I think the question is something like for every year of education in the world for men, what's the fraction for a woman? Yeah, that the world's not equal yet across the board, but people think that's like, oh, for every year a man has of education and one has half a year or something like that. And it's like 0.9, I think, the answer. 
So again, globally, globally, yeah, globally. So, wow. so, so even glo I mean, you think about globally, lots of many, many places in the world where women are just not in the same level playing field as, as in Western democracies, right? And yet, <laughs> the, the, the schooling availability for women in the world essentially matches the, of men these days. So, well, wow, that's, I, I didn't, that's a, the world's that's a kind of a place. <laughs> It's kind of amazing. I didn't yeah. realize that. So, and again, no, the, uh, these numbers might be a little bit off, but that's the gist of it. So, we spend a lot of time on those facts. I hope at the end of it, they're like, "All right, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm just trying to say okay, these, these are that's where we live. That's what, what's happening out there." So, so, there's this phrase that you hear a lot. We've heard heard it a lot in the past two years with COVID. Trust the science. Mm -hmm. Are you saying trust the science? No, because that's not... Like, what does that phrase mean to you? Yeah. It feels like a phrase that belongs in your class as, a, as right, something to right, talk right, about. Right, right, right. I think that the phrase trust the science in the past few years has been a phrase associated with an action, which we're going to get to in a second talking about the class. So do this, and then, you know, things are going to be whatever. You're going to get the right result. You need to do this. So Wear a mask, stay at home. Wear a mask, stay at home. Whatever. Vaccinate your kid, whatever, right? Eat less meat, whatever, whatever Either it is. Organic that, food yeah, versus conventional food. food. Or, that's right, that's right. So th those are all things. Take vitamin D, don't take vitamin D, you know, drink more coffee, drink less coffee. Those are yeah. prescriptions that you ought to do this, right? And what happened in the past two years that there was a set of those things that was said to us that you ought to do those things because that's what science tells you. Follow the science. Well, that's not what science is. Science is not a prescriptive mechanism. It's a mechanism for us to learn about the world in which we live in, and you have hypotheses, and you test them, and you go from them, and you update them, and you, you're constantly trying to deal with the unknown and trying to figure out what's right or what's not right out there. But that's not a decision-making process. That's informative to a decision-making process, but it's not the final decision-making process. So we don't have scientists dictating policy for us. We have politicians dictating policy for us. We have the democratic system dictating policy for us with inputs from the scientists. Would it be a better world if the scientists were running things? Like, Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, so why? How do we pick the technocrats? That's, that's the, the, the fallacy of that, of that argument, right? First of all, you might have a value problem with it, which again, that's why the values is the title of the class in a second, we can talk more about it, but the notion that whose right is it to say for you to do something or not? Who, why are you giving away part of uh, your agency I think the, the example of Western democracies, and again, America plays an important role in founding that notion. Forget about this, right? That's the place where we start the notion of representation really is here in, in 1789. And 76, I suppose 89 is a little later with the constitution. But the okay. idea being that we, it's a trade-off. I'm giving up some freedoms, agency of mine, to a group of people that are elected by us, that they will make some decisions for us, right? And they're gonna fight the, 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 in, the, in the space of ideas about what, you know, different groups, different factions, and we're gonna agree that whatever they decide, it's the way, you know, that particular decision is gonna go. And we're gonna limit the space in which those decisions can take place. That was the original, original the idea. Bill of right? Rights. Yes, yeah, well, there's so. certain things you can do, and that's it. So the notion that, no, 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 let's not have that. Let's have a set of, what, we're we gonna elect now the experts? Who are the experts? Is the smartest one? Is the, the one that scores the highest in SAT? Is the one that has a job at Harvard, not at UT? Who are the experts that we're gonna trust? So that notion of give all the technocratic decision makers, it's, it's, it's just, I don't think you, people have thought about carefully enough about what that means, right? But we saw that happening in the past two years. We saw that sort of- I mean, that was the slogan. Taking I'm away, yeah. Doing what the experts the tell me. Exactly. It seems like an appeal to authority most of the it time. It is, it is. And, and again, if people remember that science is an input to a decision and not the decision itself. That's the, the, I think, the main, the main piece. In this class, we try to instill is exactly that notion that science is, 
It's one of the most wonderful things we have available as a vehicle to gather information, to organize information, to help us make better decisions about the world in front of us, right? You cannot think about that as, as telling you what to do exactly at the end of the day. I've heard a similar phrase from economists. I just look at the data and it, the data tells me what, what needs to be done. But you're saying no. Correct. So first, well, let's make sure that the data that can be verified, that we actually know it. Right. Okay, so poverty, cut in half in the past 20 right. years. So now the question is how, why, what should we do? Right. And I guess this is where values come in? Poverty has been cut in half. Well, you might say, okay, we need to cut it further. So why has it been cut in half? That's explaining the cause of that is now a much harder question. Because now there's interpretation. It's not like we ran an experiment and we did something over here in this yeah. plot of land and we did something over there in that plot of land. And these people here got richer and these people here didn't. And therefore, we know what did, what happened. What was the cause, right? We don't have that. We've got a couple, right? We have a couple. North Korea, South a... Korea, <laughs> Eastern Germany, Germany Western, Western Germany. Germany. Yes, <laughs> we do have some what we call natural experiments yeah. that gave us the, huh. So we kind of know a lot of the sources. Now, when we're talking about the hockey stick figures, the class goes on to start thinking about why. Do we know why? And there's competing visions of why, and there's some different people that write different things. Deidre McCloskey is one, one that, that has written a lot about this. Those are difficult books to read and make my students read that necessarily. I guess the uh, simplistic explanation that, that she gives is this notion that all of a sudden we had the freedom to pursue whatever our interests were, right? And get the rewards from that and not be you know, constrained by others to tell us what to do and only do that, right? So again, it's the authority. We, we broke the authority figure of the feudal lord to now lots of people doing different things and it turns out to be something that leads to uh, an enriching emergent order. Uh, and then things like property rights and yada yada, lots of things were necessary to make this thing work and, and it's not easy to explain. So we're already seeing here a transition from, okay, obvious facts to explaining the cause of those facts is now much harder. And you know, the science plays a role in that in trying to yeah. adjudicate about, oh, what evidence do we have and this and that and the other. And then it comes now, okay, forward has been cut in half. What do we do next now? to continue that process, it's a good process, so is there something to be done? And then oftentimes those are things that might, might include ideas that haven't been tested yet. So you need to develop a framework that allows you to sort of like think through the things that could happen from that new idea that you're putting forward. And that's the notion of what economics generally gives us a very good lens from which to think about problems, is that you're making a choice and you accept the fact that in a world where scarcity is always in front of us, right? We're making a choice with some notion of a budget constraint. And, you know, do one thing, you do less of something else. And that's the typical sort of toolbox that we, got, we try to put in front of the students next to say, all right, that particular intervention might have some positive things, but because we live in a world of scarcity, it might have some negative things as well, or some unintended consequences. That's what the shirt is, is so all about. So explain right? this shirt. So there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Every decision you make, you're giving up something. It's just, it's gonna be really rare, the situation where you make a choice and the choice means nothing that you gave up on the other hand, okay? So there's no, so when someone says college should be free. Mm -hmm. College should be free, okay. But I have to get paid, right, to teach my classes. Yeah, I mean, you're a professor. We have to have buildings. I mean, we have literally billions of dollars of capital install at UT. If you think about all the buildings and all the libraries and books and cars and everything, labs and et cetera, et cetera. So there's billions of dollars invested in that thing to exist. So when you say college has to be free, well, 
the money for that institution has to exist somehow, and it's going to have to come from somewhere. From where? Well, the implication of this particular idea of policy is that, well, the public is going to pay for it. Collectively, we're going to pay for it through taxpayers. Okay, so now you're saying that we're going to tax the economy, tax the individuals. Government doesn't produce anything. It takes from others, from us, right? To deploy for good or bad reasons, but, you know, whatever choices, right? Yep. Well, okay, so if you're going to make college free, all of a sudden now you're making that collective choice, something that has to be funded somehow. And by doing that, you might not be funding something else because there's a finite amount of money government has, right? So that's the, 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 the one thing. Those slogans and ideas, they might sound very good at first. Oh, that, yeah, that's great. College should be free. Yeah. And people use the, the argument that I hear all the time on that direction is that, well, we made K-12 free. Isn't that a wonderful that we have public schools? The country was built on these public amazing schools that we have. Well, <laughs> let's not talk about that yet. <laughs> but the point is that it's not free of a trade-off. Well, we have these great schools, and they come to uh, they come to they come out of these great schools not knowing anything. anything. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, do we spend too little, too much on schools? Well, those are those are all questions that are important questions to ask, and you need to be thinking about those trade-offs, having the discipline to go through them, discipline to try to imagine what could go wrong when a certain decision you're making. Is something that requires an enormous amount of thoughtfulness, really. If statistics is understanding how to observe data and use mathematics and use tools to look at it through different lenses. Well, just think about to inform those trade-offs. That's the way, right? And economics gives us a few lessons that are necessary for you to think through what could happen ahead of you, right, when you're making a decision. So the notion of scarcity is one. Is a study of scarcity, essentially, what economics yep. is, right? We're trying to decide between buying, you know, work more or having more leisure. Buy a banana or buy an orange, right? I have one dollar. Do I buy a banana or do I buy an orange? That's an economic problem. One of the th ways I think about scarcity is uh, time. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that we cannot make more of. Yeah, everybody's got the same 24 hours. Yeah. So um, scarcity, under, re realizing that we're always facing scarcity, is turns out to be a lesson that it's obvious. It's not the rocket science, right? And yet, you go through a number of people that are coming out of K through 12 and are in college or in further through college, and they, you know, all these ideas, they are put forward without any thinking about the scarcity associated with it. What other things in the economics toolbox do you bring to the to the class? Because obviously economics is a whole field of study, right. so, so the you're study, picking right. just a, a couple things. The to big ideas. Yeah, and this class is only the big ideas. So the notion of scarcity, understanding that, and understanding how to thinking about opportunity costs. That's another lingo in economics of something that's very So what does important. that mean? Is that if you're doing something over here, you're not doing something else, right? If, we're, if I'm here with you having this conversation, it means that I'm not, what do I like to do for fun? I don't know. <laughs> this, that's <laughs> kind of funny. So, <laughs> uh, but, but let's play say- Play duck shooting. Exactly, play duck shooting, that's right. Uh, I'm doing less of that, right? So that's a choice that I made. There's an opportunity cost to what we're doing here. You take a job that maybe pays more because you want to make more money. Well, maybe that job is not as fulfilling as this other job over here. So there's an opportunity cost. You're giving up that, right? So there's all these things that essentially it's, again, associated with scarcity. I mean, when I think about opportunity costs as a dad, I think especially about that and about the trade-off between my time with my family mm -hmm. and my work. Mm -hmm. And that's a tough one for each of us to navigate. Okay, so opportunity cost, what else? Right. What so, other economics so, ideas? So um, supply and demand, the notion of supply and demand, it's a very useful way to organize these ideas. And lots of things can be put into that framework, which is, which is quite, quite useful. And you know, that makes decent predictions about certain things, especially when we're thinking about controlling that system, controlling either 
setting prices, let's say making college free. So supply and demand mechanism gives you some important ways from which to think about what that's gonna do, right? So let's use that um, for a sec. So as an example, so I have heard, and if you, you can Google it, and it's like schools like UT or Berkeley in the 1960s cost like $1,500 a year. Mm -hmm. in, and it's, you know, adjusted for inflation, maybe that'd be something like five, 6,000 mm -hmm. today. So they double. Um, now, what's the, what's the UT, tuition for UT? UT is actually, it's $12,000 a year. Okay, so that's pretty good. But um, in, in state, in state, 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 in state in California might not be so far from that. Yeah, but there's universities that charge fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. So what does supply and demand tell me? How can I use supply and demand to understand what's happened to college? Because the cost of college has like has accelerated way faster than inflation or wages. Which is weird. So it's like, right. how so, is the so price that, going up so that, fast? So I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go back to one of my favorite plots. If you if you go to Mark Perry of AI, he's a professor in Michigan, Michigan State or something like that. Uh, he has this plot of prices, of different categories of prices through the years, okay? Yep. And the things that got relatively cheap and the things that got relatively expensive. And it's like every single thing that got relatively expensive are things that you don't have enough competition in the marketplace are things that the government is subsidizing demand while at the same time restricting supply. So I said a lot of things here that they're jargon. Yeah, so so let's, let's talk about subsidizing demand. What do you mean by subsidizing demand? You're helping people, you're making it cheaper, quote unquote, for people to access that somehow by giving them a handout for that particular product. All right, so, so college for, is free, here's the money, it's free the money. to you. Free to you. Not so, free to this guy so that pays, if it's but free, free I'm, I, my decision to go to college is gonna be a little easier <laughs> if it's free, right? I'm gonna go. Okay, so that's subsidizing demand. We subsidize demand when, for housing through the way in which mortgages work. The government makes mortgages secure to banks. So if you're buying a house under a certain limit, the government is essentially securing that through some mechanism. And therefore, the price that the bank is offering you the mortgage for is actually less than it would have been otherwise. Well, that makes people more likely to buy a house. You're lowering the price, you get more demand as a result. You're lowering the price of college, you're getting more demand as a result. You're lowering the price of healthcare by subsidizing demand through Medicaid, Medicare, forcing cross subsidies through the Obamacare, forcing different groups to pay for. For example, I have to be covered for birth control. Right. But I'm not gonna use it. But I have the insurance companies are forced to provide me with a benefit, which makes my insurance premiums higher in order to subsidize, it will help subsidize others. So that yeah. kind of stuff is always coming from subsidies of demand. The government is doing that continuously in lots of different areas. And so those things are all things that artificially inflate demand when you subsidize, when you lower artificially the price of something. At the same time, those areas that we just talked about are areas where government, again, restricts supply. So in a little supply and demand diagram, if I increase demand while constraining supply, things are gonna be a problem. There's only one way they can happen. Prices have to go up in a relative sense. What is the, the, the restriction of supply? Well, housing, building houses is not something that is particularly free. We have lots and lots of restrictions on building houses, especially in places where people wanna live. We, we are blessed to live in Austin, a place where people still, you know, given all the effort by, the, by our city council, building is still possible here. Yeah. But lots of folks moving from California to Texas these days are moving, one main reason is that, they're just like the, there's no supply of housing growth in housing in California and the prices become prohibitively there very quickly. Another place where government constraints supply, medical, I mean, you just like it's so regulated is 
For you to build a new hospital, you have to tell, ask permission from the other hospitals that exist. I mean, that's just... <laughs> right, the certificate of need. Certificate so, of need, exactly. I've got a great idea for a new hospital. Let me ask the current hospital owners. Right, the competition, if they want to have a new competitor. Surprise, like, surprise. Sounds great, right? Supply, surprise. And colleges. Well, we're here again in Austin where a new institution is trying to be built, University of Austin. Right? When was the last time a good university was built? When was the last time that UT significantly increased the number of people, number of seats in its, in its university, given that we're in a state that has grown in population tremendously, right? Our most elite institution, the University of Texas at Austin, has not grown in any meaningful way in hmm. the past 20, 30, 50 years. So constrained supply, you subsidize demand. Well, what do you think is going to happen? There's only one thing that economics tells is going to happen, and it happens every single time. Again, it's a tried-tested <laughs> model. Prices will go up. So what happens when your students confront this? Because that combo seems to be like the combo. So for example, right now it's June 2022, a baby formula shortage. Right. It's a perfect example of what's going on here. The government basically makes it really hard for people right. to compete, to offer baby formula, and their solution to there's not enough formula because we made it hard for people to produce formula is we will like cut you a check to buy more formula. So it's the, the same thing. Exactly. The same thing. Help. It doesn't solve the problem yeah. at all. Right? We're gonna like not allow you to drill well, for oil, but we're also gonna, gonna give you a check to buy more gasoline in California. That's right. Meanwhile, in, in in areas where that doesn't take place, prices tend to go up down through competition. Quality tends to improve through competition. And the example is gonna be your cell phone, your you know computer in front of you. All the consumer goods that we have have been improved tremendously and lowered the price relative in a relative sense. Right. So that go to interference in the supply and demand framework is something that governments do all the time, all the time. And they always have the exact predictable impact that you expect them to have once you understand and analyze that, that system. Now, why is it? Why is it that governments do this? Why is it that we think that's a necessary thing? Well, because oftentimes it comes with a nice slogan associated with it. It comes with a nice sort of like, let's give them the charitable interpretation, which is, I'm trying to do good. When I'm subsidizing housing, making cheaper for people to buy a house, well, isn't it good to own a house? Right. Every American, oh, should, own, own own a home. Every American should own a home. That sounds great. Every American should have health care. That sounds great. Every American yeah. should have the right to go to college. That sounds great. All those things sound amazing, but they come at a price. They have, again, we live in a world of scarcity, so you cannot assume that everybody can have everything without constraints. That's not possible. That's not possible. Something's got to give, right? So even though things, as we talked in the beginning, things have gone a lot better, the world is a lot better, well, it, there's this notion that it could be better even still, yes, but it's not through the government handing you stuff. That's not gonna be the way we're gonna get better. We're gonna get better by being smarter, by building things better, by being, building things more effective, efficiently, by raising productivity on everything we would do. That's the only way we improve. That's the only way we improve, and not through taking from Peter to give to Paul. What is the response from this mix of students that come into your class when they are confronted with this way of thinking? So let me use the minimum wage as an example. Okay. Uh, because that's an example that we use in class as a case study. So minimum wage again. Now, you haven't heard much about minimum wage laws lately, but for a good period of time in the past 10 years, there was a lot of effort to talk about raising the minimum wage in lots of places in the country. The idea being that, you know, it's not fair what people get paid out there, right? So raising the minimum wage has the predictable side effect through the supply and demand framework that you're gonna reduce the amount of jobs. If you force people to get paid more, you're trying to put a price floor on a certain good, right? The suppliers, if that's, that's too high, 
relative to what the demand for labor is, is willing to pay, you're just gonna get fewer people employed as a result. Again, the, the, the simple exercise in supply and demand will tell you that. You raise the minimum wage, you're gonna reduce employment. So okay. I've got a, I'm a small retailer. Mm -hmm. I currently have high school kids work as greeters and entry level people. Right. Now I've got to pay them $15 an hour, which is like a $36,000 salary. Well, I don't have the money to pay them that. So you can't force me to hire them, I guess. So I guess I'm not going to hire greeters Correct. anymore. So I have fewer people working in my store. Great. The scene part, and when I use now a term that is going to come back later, we see the people that get to, that still have a job are going to pay more. Yeah. Sounds great. They're great. But we don't see necessarily the high school kid that now did not get the job that would have been there had you had the ability to pay them 12 as opposed to 15, right? So when we look at the framework of supply and demand, we know what the model tells us it's going to happen. And then we can try to validate with data. And again, the studies are overwhelming, overwhelming in the direction of, well, sure, some people will benefit because they are the ones with a job that will maintain their jobs, but lots and lots and lots will not benefit because they are not going to be able to get their next job. They're going to get, they're going to delay the interest in the, in the job market, and there's all sorts of negative consequences associated with that, so on and so forth. But the reaction from the student's perspective, when you ask about the reaction, one of the reactions is the notion of fairness. Nobody should work for this little money. Okay. And that's a hard thing to respond. So, you're saying that nobody should work for this little money, so you prefer them not to work? But, you know, if you have a sense of fairness that tells you that nobody should work for this little money, yeah, then... Yeah, I mean, I understand the, the feeling of that. I understand the feeling, exactly. But that feeling is not... I mean, what is the option? The option is no work. What is that when that... So when you have a dialogue with students and they say this, they say, well, this is just not right, it's not just... What, what happens next? in this kind of conversation. For those students that have this attitude that the world should be different. We should live in a world where your supply and demand gimmicks should not apply. And I don't have an answer to that. I'm just like, okay. And that's the great reset people. That's the people that think that, you know, we tried a very different way to deal with this, you know, in the 20th century, which was particularly negative. We did try in a very large, successful country in a lot of ways, right? We tried to create a system that do away with supply and demand. And it failed miserably in the Soviet Union and <laughs> the whole attempts of communism, right? Again, it's a complicated conversation to have because it's just like, well, I don't, I don't know a way to be productive with you if you say, oh, the world should be different. But it's not. Human nature is human nature. You know, we are beings that react to incentives. It's another very important economic concept and, and so on and so forth. But those are rare, actually. Those students are rare. I think a lot of them are like, huh, I had never thought about it that way. And I think that, yeah. that you bring to them, that framework helps bring to them this notion of, Yes, supply and demand actually is a very helpful way to think about the world. Even if I want to make an intervention, because I might think that I need to benefit this group versus that group, the supply and demand is going to help me think more effectively about how that intervention should take place. And I think that that's a, that's a positive thing that you see coming out. Let me go back to one other aspect of the economics way of thinking that is very helpful. Is this notion, again, of what we see versus what we don't see, right? So the, yeah. the, there's this famous okay. book called Economics in One Lesson that is written in one, I think, in the... 50s or 60s? I think it's the 50s. Yeah, it's yeah. a long time ago. Henry Hazlitt. Yes, and it's still incredibly timely in terms of the way in which we make mistakes about understanding the world around us is by looking at the result of a choice that we make only on the obvious thing in front of you versus the sort of uh, unintended consequences that might come through the fact that we live in a scar system generally, right? That will come on later on, might be hidden. The book puts in the short term versus long term 
Think about an example, recent example of masks for kids. Let's focus on masks for kids. All right, wear a mask because we're trying to prevent transmission of a certain pathogen. Okay, that makes, maybe makes sense. Maybe it was the right thing to do in terms of there is an effect, let's say, of reducing the transmissibility of the pathogen. So that you see that, you see that, okay, we'll put this mask on and that's gonna reduce the probability of one person getting sick across the others in this little classroom of kids, right? Well, what do we don't see here? Well, we don't see the fact that kids interact through their smiles, they, they have facial expressions, they're learning how to be social with each other. There's all these things that you're not seeing right now the effect of. But that two years later, oh, all of a sudden the kids are kind of acting weird. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is that there's lots and lots of studies coming out now and people speaking about like, there's lots of different things that we're noticing in our kids right now. And maybe part of it is the fact that we, we put them under masks for, for two years, right? Yeah, let's cover their faces at the time when they're developing speech. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, a family member of mine has kids with a speech impediment and she took them to a speech therapist that was at a public school and the speech therapist had to wear a mask and the kids had to wear the mask. And the speech therapist said, I can't actually do my job right. because the kids need to see. You need to see that the, mouth the, the, Exactly, <laughs> movements and, and so on. <laughs> Mimic. It's had to do with even like how to use the tongue to pronounce R's. And it's like, right. well. Right. So it's a terrifying thing to be a father or a mother, right? To be a parent and, and trying to navigate, what should I do? And if the authorities out there are telling you, you should do this. The science says do this. Science says do that, right? And those statements are very strong and I think gets people to be very anxious about what they should do with their own kids. Yeah. And one of the things that through my, I think, thinking and the teaching and with, again, others do, do a very good job at that as well, is to try to make sure parents understand that there's no right answer. Again, there's no solutions, right? Every decision that you make with your kid, it's gonna be actually most likely a function of the unique situation that you're facing. And whenever science says something that might be good or bad, remember that's on average. And one has to realize that their individual situations matter a lot and your understanding of the situation is gonna be better than anybody else's. What science can provide you with is information that allows you to look at those things and say, wow, I could do this, I could do that. But then evaluate that in your circumstance and making the decisions. I wanna bring up Emily Oster here as a, an example of this, you know, the, oh, yeah. her writings about whether it's pregnancy or whether it's like early childhood, you know, management of your kid and so on. Her whole point is to say, to think as an economist, you know, she's the, the poster child of this framework that we talked about here, is this notion that let me provide you the information, but you need to make the decision. It's your decision and your values and your understanding of the situation will have to matter a lot and not just some expert that can tell you, here's what you should do with your kid and that's it, right? We see that a lot and I think that a lot of people get very anxious and like, wait a second, that doesn't sound right for my kid. And chances are, that is not right for your kid. I think your instincts oftentimes are the best thing for you to do with your kid. Yes, sure, go look for the information, go look for what the science can provide you with, you know, the good and bad or the ugly about certain choices you might need to make, but like, focus on your situation, focus on the individual setting of what you're facing, the decision is gonna be incredibly important. I think this is powerful and important now more than ever because, yeah, obviously with mask mandates for kids in school, this was a huge thing well, for parents. What school to go to? That's another thing, right? Yeah, it's, um, it is. It's like we face all these choices, whether or not to breastfeed whether how, and for how long, whether or not to do sleep training. Play with screens or not, how much time in a screen? All those things, right? I'm working with Martin Gurry, who, you know, has this book, The Revolt of the Public, and his whole thing is about that. We're awash in a fifth wave of information. 
And I think as a parent, this feels especially true because you go on, okay, you've got a newborn baby and they're crying like crazy and you're losing your mind and you Google sleep training or Ferber or cry it out and you are left in a barrage of competing views that some of which are data, but most of which are just feelings and opinions. So how do you as a parent bring this framework into your life as a dad? As I said earlier, right, it takes a lot of discipline to fight some urges that we have, like, oh, somebody could just tell me what is the right thing to do here? That wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? And what I try to do is, is really search the information as best I can, right? But then, you know, sit down with my wife and we talk about it and we try to do exactly that of like, what is our cost benefit here? What is the trade-offs that we're facing, right? And try to make the decision in as good of a, as organized way as possible, taking as an input our circumstances. We mentioned breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is one of those things that the amount of shaming and sort of pushing that happens from the experts, like you, you know, should breastfeed. When you go through it, and again, individual circumstances matters tremendously, but when you go through the science of it, it's like, well, it's not as clear. It's just not as clear. And the trade-offs are obvious. The time trade-off is obvious there, right? If you have a working wife, you know exactly the time trade-off of that. There's an enormous cost for women to breastfeed. Let's not pretend it's not a cost. So when doctors will tell you, oh yeah, breastfeeding is great, and ignore the cost, that's not particularly helpful. And breastfeeding is one of those things that's very politicized in some ways. Not politicized is not the word. It's just like, yeah. you know, there is, a, there is the right way, right? And it turns out it's not. And again, I bring, I bring Emily as an example of somebody that was courageous to put that forward. Like, listen, here's the evidence really, and do what you need is best, but here's the facts of different, you know, and the trade-offs. And, and she got, I mean, the amount of hate the thing she, she got, oh, you're an economist, how dare you write about this? You're not a doctor. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing of this trying to defer to authority in ways and I think making sure people understand the authorities don't just take, get the information that's available and you try to digest it. I think there's a, a spectrum and I'm curious how you think about this in terms of data and I would say complexity. So there's physics at one extreme, you know, what happens on like a perfect perfect flat surface when this ball hits that ball. I know exactly. I can right. do the math. Right. Okay, let's put 10 balls on. Now it gets harder. Let's put 20 balls on. Now it gets harder. Let's have trillions of human cells in a body that all have different functions. Now we're in a total, now we're in the other extreme, right. you know. Well, and then, and then you add to on top of it like human behavior, which is like a right. So now you get this multi-trillion cell organism with its own mind and plans and purposes inside of a society of hundreds of millions of people. And the data and what, how I should think about the data changes. So how do you, how do you think about that? Talking to students, I like to make this, um, what is harder is to build a 747 or to build a rocket that brings people to the moon, or to understand the effects of the minimum wage? It seems like an obvious answer. Of course it's harder to build the rocket. It's not. <laughs> it turns out the physics is like, it's very complex. It's very complicated, nonlinear, but it's to some degree deterministic. What do I mean by deterministic? It's like, we kind of know, right, the laws of physics, cause and effect when you push this, this goes in a certain way, whatever. And the same thing with the rockets, you can actually have a very clear idea what's gonna happen. Of course, there's errors that take place and so on. But understanding things that associate with human behavior and relationships between human beings is, it's actually much harder. It's very, very hard. It's a, it's a system full of, full of stochastic uh, elements to it, full of randomness to it. So you have to be a little bit humble. I think one of the problems that we see is this lack of 
epistemic humility. I think that's the that's the the, the word that I like. Yeah, so this just humility, humility mm -hmm. to be confronted with a situation, be like even as an expert, be like you know what? I have to be careful not to quickly convince myself that I know the answer to this thing or that I know I have the answer before. And lots of these problems is so complex that you have to take a step back and you know, being a parent is one of those. Like there'll be a lot of people telling you exactly how you should do it, but there's lots of different ways in which you might get to the same place and it's not as clear. So be a little humble and like, listen, think, act, right? And, and uh, when, you, when you saw, again, COVID, it was just like a lack of humility. Like, to, you, do you really think that there's no problems with this giant intervention in a system that's this complex, send everybody home and somehow no problem. I mean, the, the, all the supply chain things people are complaining. Are you surprised by any of this? I'm actually surprised it wasn't worse back in 2020. Yeah, in I was way. expecting some things to be like, I was expecting some horrible things to happen in the beginning. And somehow they, they didn't, it shows a lot about the robustness of our system. But then a lot of it did, a lot of it did, right? It's the lack of humility. I think you have to approach these problems with humility and accept that it's gonna be hard to get the inputs for a decision and not get into these problems by thinking that I will find the solution because there are no <laughs> solutions. <laughs> that would be the only trade-off. It's so emotionally unsatisfying. Terrible, yes. To say there are no solutions, <laughs> only trade-offs. And I, I think that that's one of the things that's so difficult is the emotional, the gut. Like, that just doesn't feel right. There's gotta be an answer. What's the solution here? Let's get all electric cars. That'll be the solution. It's like, well, there's not that many rare earths. I, I, <laughs> there's like a lot that, of problems there. Like, I guess I, I, take, I take comfort on the notion that there are many solutions. Maybe that's the way I like to think about it. There's not just one, the solution. There's lots of paths that are good. That's, that's what I think it's incredibly fascinating about the world in some ways, right? Like, yeah, we have all these different things that we can do. And again, emergent order is a, is a great way to think about this. Like, you know, people, all these people doing different things and generates a wonderful outcome as a result. And that, that's how I, I like to think about it. It's like, well, as long as we don't put all our eggs in one basket into one solution, because that's the problem is, is not, Lack of diversification, right? You know, and, and, and you're gonna go through lots of decisions. And if you're just are humble to say, oh, you know, I'm not necessarily as confident about any of these because, well, there's all sorts of things that I have to take into account, but I have to make a solution anyway, right? I think that humility can help you navigate things in, in, a, in a positive way. The values, values part mm -hmm. is a big part of this class. So we talked about um, statistics, but where do values right. come into so, play So now? it was trade-offs, values, and data, right? Trade-offs is the economic way of thinking, all that we've been talking yeah. about here in the past few minutes. Data is the statistics part, understanding, I guess, cause and effect is a big part of, of, of the discussions we have in statistics. And then there's values. Well, what is the values here? The values point is the following. Even if you and I went through the same exact exercise to evaluate costs and benefits, the trade-offs, the good and the bad of a certain policy, we look at the data in the exact same way, we agree on, on what the science. Now, let's assume that scientifically, you and I came up with the same exact set of analysis. We have the same analysis in front of you, but then you vote for A and I vote for B. Well, because we might have different preferences, we might have different values that weighs those costs and benefits. And that's something that, again, going back to your question about, oh, follow the science. Okay, the, follow the science will never be able to incorporate the values. So let's say you and I go through the studies to try and understand the effect of police on crime. And, and we agree that more policing leads to less crime. Yeah. That's uncontroversial, that's the science. The science tells us that like without any doubt, more police equals less crime, period. No question, okay. Well, you might disagree on the level of policing that we need to have than me. And the reason might be that, well, 
let's say more policing means more infringements on civil liberties. Because, you know, more police means that you get pulled over more often. Or, like, you know, you see people walking around with guns, with authority figures, and then you don't like that. That's like a, like, that's too much of a... Like a police state. Yeah, police state. Like, you look at, yep. like, in the Nazi Germany with all these people, you know, with these uniforms wearing, like, a bunch of guns. And, like, you don't want, you don't want that. I don't want to live in that society, right? That's a value. That's a value choice that you might have. I don't want that. I prefer to live a higher crime because I don't want to have the civil liberty infringed upon me, right? A lot of libertarians in circles that we run in, they have the notion of, again, talking about that uh, uh, incarceration. So punishing people for crimes is something that, again, we might argue whether or not that's a good idea that actually has benefits from the cost-benefit analysis. But let's say it does. Let's say the death penalty is an effective deterrent, meaning that by having the death penalty, fewer people will act and make some horrible crimes uh, as a result of the potential that they will get caught and, and get killed by the state, right? So me and my wife, is just one of the things that we disagree strongly. Well, it turns out the death penalty is not necessarily as effective as a deterrent, but even if it was, there's no way she would accept the notion the state can put somebody down, period. That's a value that she does not want to go cross the line. No, there's, under no circumstances, no matter what one does, the state collectively has the power to go and kill that person. Okay, it's a value statement. And that's what the values are, and that's an important thing to realize is that we're gonna go through these exercises of trying to scientifically engage with the question of a policy idea, but at the end of the day, values matter. And we are different people that value different things, and we have different philosophical underpinnings, different ethical considerations, and so on, and we might disagree in the end, and that's okay. What I can hope for is that when, you know, Democrats and Republicans are fighting for an idea in the Senate or the House, they can look at the same facts, they can come up with the analysis equally, and then they disagree. Okay, this is not a priority for me, this is a priority for you. We disagree. That's fine, and that's okay. I hope that students incorporate that in their thinking, because very quickly these days we have this notion of vilifying the other side that disagree with you. So when you bring this values component into this conversation and into the sequence of this class, does it plow over all the prior stuff? Is it like, oh, okay, so I can look up at the data, I can see the way, say, fossil fuels have contributed like uncontroversially to the uplift of billions of people out of poverty, but I still want them banned because I, that's my value and, right. and damn it, I'm gonna stick with it. That's a great uh, um, case study to talk about values when we talk about the environmental movement. So one value by some in the environmental movement and when thinking about the environment is that the world that we found, let's say circa, which is not necessarily true, but let's say circa 1800, Okay? Their world is optimal in some ways. Okay? That's an ideal sure. world that has to be preserved. So whatever combination of plants, animals, temperature, whatever, is somehow optimal. And that's amazing, no matter the fact that, of course, there's like a random event and a path of different potential outcomes that we had that led us to 1800. Right. And humans had already interfered a lot in the space, in the, in the world. Yeah, let's, let's just say, let's, let's say assume that no humans 1800 BC, let's yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And there, there is that, a group of people that have those values in mind. The Sierra Club kind of has those values in mind. No, any change is bad. Any change is bad. Yeah, human uh, intervention any is sort human of intervention Im is bad. immoral because um, Correct. it's not natural. It's not natural, which is really, I, I, I don't know what it means. Yeah, I don't know what it means, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we are a species in this planet that have the ability to interfere, like any other species has the ability to interfere in the environment around them. We are very good at that. <laughs> um, and that's, so be it, right? We also dominate I mean, as a species. We can grow whatever. And elephants trample entire ecosystems exactly. all the time. So, but that's a value. And some people say, no, no, no matter what you say, you know, I mean, I, I like the world, whatever the, the, the state of nature that humans found 
you know, the world, let's say, that we live in, and we need to fight to preserve that. That's the I mean, group of people that have ten generally tends to, let's say, be against GMOs, right? Genetic modified um, yeah. foods. And, and when you look at that, it's like, well, I don't think there's anything that we eat right now that, is, that hasn't been modified by us severely through, through the years. Yeah, like natural yeah. apples. Yeah, like, yeah. Are, corn. are not really are barely edible. Corn is like this big. Yeah, it used to be like a little thing, you know. And then through breeding, selective breeding, we did a lot of things to to make corn what it is today, right? Uh, so, so that that, that that's a value, and and it, I kind of have to accept. If you want to, you know, live like a caveman, and live in a world that looks like this, okay. Well, you, there's nothing I can show you in terms of evidence of positive things that we've done. Now, those are extremists, and you don't have enough people with those strong values in mind, right? But that permeates a lot of the discussions that we have and, and things like, for example, nuclear energy. Yeah. As green, quote unquote, as it gets when it comes to carbon emissions. There's zero. Well, not zero, of course, there's things to build the thing, blah, blah. But like on the margin, there's zero. Yeah. Um, each new, each new item, each new joule of energy, energy comes <laughs> with no extra, very little, little carbon associated with it, right? And yet it's not something that has been in the forefront of our discussions about climate change. And a big component of that is that, you know, there's this notion that this is very unnatural. Look how scary this is. You can make horses with two heads if you have a nuclear, a nuclear accident or something like that, right? There's a, a, this unreasonable fear of nuclear energy. And if you look objectively at the data, at the evidence that we have about our ability to control the systems, it's incredible how safe it is. It's incredible how effective it is. And yet we have essentially ruled that out of existence. Government made nuclear energy an impossible thing to produce and grow. And a lot of it has to do with the values, these values of, no, nature cannot be messed up in that particular, in that particular way. So, um, I saw a scary movie in the 70s yeah. with, uh, was it Jane Fonda? Yeah, exactly. But, China Syndrome. But, but values also play a role in the environmental aspect of it, too, that's interesting. How do you weigh ethically people in the future versus people now? That's a tough thing. So, okay, so explain that. What do you mean by that? Let's say we keep producing, let, let's assume that we agree that fossil fuels are a major source of, of the heating of the planet that you see right now. Us burning fossil fuels leads to more CO2 emissions, which leads to more heating of the atmosphere. And let's also assume that there will be very negative consequences, let's say a thousand years from now. So in making a decision to not consuming fossil fuels today, we're hurting our lives today. You know, by making energy more expensive today, by not burning fossil fuels, that means that we're gonna consume less energy. If we consume less energy, that's essentially making our lives a little bit worse, right? And um, it's probably keeping billions of people in abject poverty. Exactly. You're fighting your ability to get out of poverty. Again, energy yeah. use means that we get more with the same amount of time. We talk about timing as scarce. People can get more for the same amount of time of work, which therefore leads to more, more everything, more abundance of everything. Energy equals abundance of things. So let's say that, okay, we, we, can, we can stop. We use less energy today because we're helping somebody a thousand years from now as a result of our choices today. So you're hurting someone today to help somebody a thousand years from now. So that's a tough choice. How do you weight? Do you weight those, the, let's say, life quality units equally? Do you weight them in different ways? Do we have some sort of discounting that we're gonna use? Well, we tend to discount the future versus today. We prefer, for example, when we think about a mortgage, the reason why you pay interest, right, is because whomever's giving you the money prefer to have the money today versus having the money 30 years from now, right? Let's talk about so, that for a little bit because I think that's something most people, certainly kids don't understand, but even like dads and parents don't necessarily understand it. They just think, oh, I go to the bank and they're greedy, so they want the highest interest rate they can get from me. And 
But what what does that mean when I say, you know, um, the discount rate? So I go to a bank and I want to get $100,000 to buy a house. So the bank has to give me the $100,000. The bank, I'm using already like the bank giving me $100,000. Well, who is the bank? Somebody that has that money right now. Not necessarily the bank. The bank is a vehicle only to connect the people who has the money to me. Why would somebody give me $100,000 to buy a house right now? Why would you do that to me, John? Give me $100,000. What, what's in it for you, right? All right, so I have- So you have $100,000 sitting in your bank account right now, yeah. and I need $100,000 to buy a house. John, you're my friend. Why don't you give me the $100,000? It's your house. I'm just gonna live yeah. in it. You know, just gonna transfer <laughs> that. Well, again, remember opportunity costs, right? I can I, do something else with that I money. I can use something else with that money. I might want the money for my kids to go to college next year. I might wanna use that money to buy a different car. I might use that money to go on a trip. There's lots of ways in which you wanna use that money. Well, when somebody tells you like, okay, you give me the 100,000 now, and I'm gonna give you back in, say, 10 years, $110,000 or whatever it is, okay? Now you say, huh, okay, I, I, that proposition, the proposition that I might be willing to, to take on, right? And what the interest rates are is essentially that, the price that comes in between savers on one side and borrowers on the other side. You are essentially transferring money from the future. I know I'm gonna make money in the future, but I wanna have the house now. Well, that's great. I know I'm gonna have the money in the future to buy that. I could try to save it and buy the house, right? Yeah, Wouldn't it be wait, better? Wait, wait, 10 wait 20 years. years, right? Wouldn't it be better to buy the house now? That sounds awesome. Well, yeah, you can. Turns out you can. You can, you can go use a time machine and have the house right now. That's, finance is the most amazing time machine we have invented, which is a notion that you can then borrow money from someone for a price and live in the house that you want now, not 10 years from now. And that person gets a compensation for that. It's a perfectly fine trade that everybody benefits. Both sides are benefiting here. You get your house now, my money gets to be you know, rewarded and gonna grow a little bit. My investment essentially gets to grow I'm, a little uh, bit. The, uh, there's that moment in It's a, it's a Wonderful Life when it, uh, Bailey is explaining, well, I don't have your money because it's in your house, in your house, in your house, because you know, they run on the bank like, yeah, to get yeah, their yeah. savings and their savings are physically in other people's homes. I, I am a, my household is a very Christmas dedicated household. We love Christmas, you know, whatever, the big thing in my life. Uh, every year in Austin for the past seven or years or so, there's this uh, a Christmas story, a musical <laughs> by the Austin, the Zach Theater here. And it's actually incredibly well done. But every year I'm so upset with the de depiction of Scrooge. <laughs> He's like, you know, I mean, he's a mean guy in the beginning fight, but like the, 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 the Dickens tries to portray the notion of lending money as this horrible thing. And he's like collecting the rent, you know, in the December 24th from somebody working in the shop, whatever, is a terrible thing. I was like, no. <laughs> Scrooge is an engine of happiness for growth. Scrooge, is my, you know, I like him in the beginning of the story. Not when you give him money away in the end. So anyway. is, is one measure of the success of your class that you watch Scrooge at the beginning of the, let's just say the Bill Murray version, <laughs> Scrooged at the beginning of the class, and by the end it's like, oh, he was a, he's actually a hero. Yes, yeah, that, that would be a measure of success if I, if I was to convince them of that. I don't think I am I'm that good. What is the biggest pushback that you get from not just students, but also from your peers. The biggest pushback you get these days is on topics that somehow there's this notion that there is a right answer. Again, this, this shirt, right? Trade-offs only. Uh, that we know the right answer and you just should follow the science. So I was a 
huge opponent of COVID restrictions from the very beginning. I was vocally, I was writing a you know, newspaper in Texas. I was helping the government centrally in the state level to try to reduce the impact of those restrictions. And one of the reasons why I was strongly against those things was not just because of the fact that I was looking at data, interpreting in a particular way, but also weighing that against values that I have that to me are unquestionable. And things that are like, you know, I thought that we were doing things that were completely outside of what governments should or can do. And we don't have to relitigate that, but the, the, the fact is that we did things that were thought impossible for a government to do. But I was questioning those things. And I was asking my students to go through and evaluate, like, does it make sense for us to have a mask mandate? I thought not wearing a mask because it was not mandatory because I'm a state institution. However, the sort of like cultural environment that I'm in, it felt that I was doing something really wrong. They were looking at me as if I was doing something really wrong. They were killing people. Yes, by my choice, right? And I, we had discussions about, okay, let's go through again, use those lenses, this particular mechanism that we just talked about to try to understand this, right? There's no question in my mind those the masks are completely nuisance and doing nothing good in the past few years. I dare ask questions about things like, should we vaccinate a 10-year-old? Tell me why I should vaccinate a 10-year-old. Let's go through it. And I don't know the answer. Let's try to figure out whether it's the right thing given what we know about the vaccine, given what we know about. So vaccinating a, a child for measles, for example, no-brainer. No-brainer. The costs and benefits of that, right? And the risks associated with that disease and so on. For COVID, it's not as clear. It's just not as clear. And again, my kids are vaccinated. There's lots of other reasons you want to consider that these days. But the point is that I dare to ask those questions. That is not an off-topic thing for me. I dare to come in and discuss these ideas and let's talk about it. Let's go through it. Let's go through the evidence gathering. I dare ask questions about defund the police. I dare ask questions about how do we know the police is racist? How do we know that this particular act, and that's one of the things that I think was the most difficult thing to ever teach students in my class is that in the context of defunding the police, and again, talking about how do we know things, how do we measure things, how do we measure cause and effect, how do we know that George Floyd was killed because he was black? How do we know that? That's a hard thing to answer. Wow, that's a, and that's you, a you were asking I this said, in That class. was at the beginning of class. That was starting, that's October 2020. I'm teaching a class where I asked the question, how do we know it? And you can see 50 students looking at you. It was like, are you saying this? I was like, yeah, I'm just asking the question. How do we know? It's impossible to know. It's literally impossible to know that that particular event would not have happened the same way had this person been of a different color. We don't know that, right? Now, social sciences give us the ability to try these tools that we have, give us the ability to try to understand whether there are patterns out there. And then we can study that. Let's see if, you know, in general, for this individual, just is gonna be almost impossible to know unless that individual says, I did it and I would not have done it if he was a different person, right? But we can go through now the social science aspect of measuring whether or not police does things relatively more often to certain groups and other groups. And, you know, the evidence to that is not particularly strong. Really? It's not particularly strong. So the, if you go through the work of Roland Fryer, Harvard economists, beautifully written papers and carefully measured things, there is some evidence of certain groups being disproportionately, let's say, stopped or disproportionately searched, or there are some engagements with the police that happen more often in certain groups, not violence. Extreme violence is just not there. So the rhetoric that we ought to defund our police because our police generates externalities, and externalities means that some groups, again, going back to values, I cannot tolerate the police doing something really bad to a certain group of people. That is a fair thing to be incredibly upset about. That's something that me as a general libertarian person would be very upset if that was true, if that is true. Yeah. But it turns out that it's not. So- I mean, that's, that, that in and of itself is a statement that is downright heretical in our culture. Yeah. To, to, to talk about that's that. That's right. 
And, 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 and the same idea of fossil fuels. We mentioned fossil fuels quite a bit today already. Same thing, if you dare to ask the question of, well, should we have a carbon tax? Because that's a natural thing in economics. Well, you know, carbon is an externality. Let's think about having a carbon tax. So then the question, the way I, I approach that in the class, what should be the level? What should be the price of, of the carbon tax if we're going to do this? And then it turns out it's a very difficult thing to answer. These notions of, of the time scale matters, you know, the cost associated with continuation of status quo matters, and all those things, you know, might lead you to a conclusion that, wait, maybe it should be like half a dollar a ton, not $40 a ton, like Canada proposed, for example. You know, that's a... It's a or, big difference. It's a big difference. Or under some different assumptions, it could be $2,000 a ton. So again, all those things, right? Just or it could be zero. Yes, it could be zero. And asking those questions in that particular way is taking you away from a already decided perspective that you shall have as a, quote, scientist, right? As a scientist, my job is to go there and reaffirm their views that, you know, yes, we need to get out of fossil fuels. As a scientist, my, clearly I have to go in and say that we need to raise the minimum wage or all those things that there's a particular political or set of preferences that uh, my peers have that you know I don't share with. I try as best as I can to approach all those issues through the lenses that we just discussed. Not, I know the answer already, let's, let me tell you what it is. No, 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 let's use the framework here. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why there's a huge group of people at universities these days that think the framework that I'm talking about in and of itself is a problem. So let's talk about that because the process that we've spent this time talking about, looking at data, trying to understand what can be known about reality, then applying an economic way of thinking, and then the values, questions. We do all this so we can now have this values conversation right. and duke it out in civil discourse. It sounds like what you've described is the philosophical framework of Western civilization, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, instead of just divine right of kings, or because the Bible told me so, and I'm a Catholic, I'm a religious person, I don't have anything against religion, but there's things that that's not what that's for. Right. But it used to be that's what it was for. Oh, no, the king is the king because God picked the king. Game over. Appeal to authority. It seems like there's some people that want us to go back to that. that right. <laughs> Especially at universities. So talk to me about that. So let me use again the example of uh, the pandemic just to highlight the issue. The entire apparatus of public health in the country, the entire apparatus, decided that, okay, one answer. They're not questioned that answer. That answer is, let's all shut ourselves in our homes, let's put ourselves in prison for unlimited period of time until we say it's safe to get out. That was essentially what we were told in March 2020. At first, when some people managed, they'll say it's two weeks, and then of course it wasn't, yeah. right? Two weeks to flatten the yeah, curve yeah, or the turn into, slow the spread yes, or exactly. whatever. So it was like a sledgehammer of an approach with a very strong messaging of like, the high priests are telling you to do so and you dare not question it. You dare not question it. A couple of months later, this, this event that we just mentioned uh, of Floyd in, in Minneapolis happens, a horrible event, which leads some people being very unhappy and upset and protest about it, which you're gonna have no problem with. That same apparatus of public health says protesting is okay because right. racism is a public health problem as well. A strange statement. A strange statement. At times you said that all the things you told me that I need to do is to save lives. I, now, you know, there's this sort of like trade-off of lives that we're talking about here. If you buy on the premise of what happened was a racist thing, whatever, wait, what are the authorities trying to do here? If that didn't open your eyes to what is happening with the expert crowd, right? I, I don't know what else will. How do I read that? I read that as like every group in the history of mankind is about power. It's about power to do what they think is right. And that group is using their power in a way that they think is right for their own 
whatever, for, you know, once you give somebody the power to do something, it's hard for them to give away that power. So all of a sudden, public health had the opportunity to be like, so see how important I am? And at the same time, they have a particular political sense about what is right or wrong about the world and how things should be, and, and maybe they're not. And, and, you know, that was an opportunity to use that power for that purpose. And what I'm trying to say is that more often than not in our institutions of higher learning, we have professors and people, researchers, acting in a way that is driven by activism, not by the pursuit of truth. The pursuit of truth becomes a, an excuse for the activism that's in place. I know the answer. I want to change the world in this particular way. I'm going to do it. So I want to quote uh, Justice Gorsuch in his Supreme Court nomination procedures, where he was being asked about sort of this mean-spirited decision that he had. And again, the, the merits of the case are not important, but the point is that when asked about this mean-spirited decision he had, he said something that justice wear robes, not capes. My job is not to, you know, <laughs> change the world in a positive way. My job is to decide based on the law in front of me. And that's, I think, the same attitude that I think it lacks with professors these days, or universities generally, is that there's this notion that my job is a job to change the world in a positive way. You know, the way I think is the world should be, and that's definitely not my job. My job is a job of pursuing truth, trying to understand the world, and put forward that understanding to others, to students, and, and so on. What happens in universities days a lot is that, that the activism takes front stage. And that activism is very unidim unidimensional in a sense that it's very left-leaning, very left-leaning. We're talking here, 95% of my peers at UT are progressive Democrats, not Democrats only, progressive Democrats, right? The framework that we just spent time talking about here, if that framework leads to an answer, that is not the preferred answer from a particular political perspective, then that has to be questioned. And then you have, on top of this, you have a particular lineage of academics, for, you know, the Marxists in various dimensions that they have developed through the years, right? That see openly that their job is to, again, reset society, change the world that we live in. And a lot of the discussion on critical race theory, for example, like critical theory, generally speaking, is that notion that your job is to incite change. That's definitely not the job when it comes to educating. Uh, kids. And so I think that the, the pushback that exists, let me be also very clear, is not particularly extreme in my case. You know, my classes, I don't think I have any issues really teaching those things. But would a lot of my colleagues prefer that, that we're not doing that? Oh yeah, for sure. You came to this country from Brazil mm -hmm. and from a family that looked up to America. Yeah. And today that story feels outside the mainstream. Um, in, a, in a very real sense. There's like the notion that the country has, and I'm not nationalistic, but mm -hmm. you know, this is Dad Saves America. And the reason why is because I do believe America has something special, but I want to hear wh why you think America is special and why you came to this country as an immigrant. You are like the quintessential American to me. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an American citizen now and a proud, proud, you know, father of two little American <laughs> citizen boys. There's only one place in the world, only one place in the world that has decided that the individual is the sort of most important unit in organizing a society. That was special. What happened in, in the founding of this country was a very, very special thing. We take for granted. We take for granted that sort of like miracle of a few people in Massachusetts and Virginia and Pennsylvania that sat down and thought long and hard about how to organize a society. They were obsessed with lessons from history at that point in time that somehow, whether through accidents, you know, became a big part of their culture and they really obsessed 
about trying to divine, de derive something that worked. Locke and Montesquieu and these and Stoics. Got, exactly, and it got to John Adams and it got to Jefferson and Franklin and Hamilton, huh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of good positive influences there, but um, Madison, my God, Madison. And they thought really hard and they did something incredibly special, something that nowhere else in the world has ever been done. And then it turns out this thing worked. Worked in a way that's like unbelievably positive in any way you want to measure. Were there problems? Yes. That's like trying to focus on the exception versus the rule. The rule is that this thing has been an engine for only goodness in the world. You can talk about some wars and some things and whatever it is you want to talk about, of course they're bad, right? But the engine of a good yeah. that the comes balance from the sheet. The balance sheet is just uh, it's not even close. And there's no alternative. There's no other society in the history of mankind that did anything close to what we've done. Not only to our, to our group here, but to the rest of the world as a consequence of our, of our decisions, right? It still is. I mean, we have given up a lot in our leadership in the world and those things come and go, but I think our system is still incredibly strong and, and a system that I'm, I have a lot of faith in it still. Yeah, fighting for it, making sure that that's something that we preserve and, and understand its value, I think is something that's absolutely necessary and quite honestly lacking these days. So I think that there's a, this hope that somehow, oh no, this is bad. It's like, no, 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 that's not bad. This is actually good. Very, very good. One of the things that is implicit, both in this framework that we've talked through and in our conversation, is freedom. Mm -hmm. That's maybe a, yeah, a big value that, and I, it, that I bring to this perspective. Yeah, and it is a value, and it, it exists in constraints against other values. Right. But what is it about freedom? And when I say freedom, what I mean is, very simply, the individual's ability to do whatever they want so long as they aren't hurting anyone else. That's not the only definition of freedom. But it's a pretty good one. It's a, it's a good <laughs> sort of Lockean, right. American version of it. Um, why does that matter so much? How does it play into this process? We talked about the, the, what's great about America, this sort of like the individual being placed in a special pedestal. Like you are a unit that has to be respected. That means that you are a unit that has to be respected in your ability to make decisions for yourself. You have agency, you're gonna be, you know, the, the, again, the dignity of that human, it's very, very important. Once you look at that and think about, okay, what's the alternative? So if that individual is not making decisions, doesn't have the freedom to make decisions, what's the alternative? Who makes a decision? Right? So you mentioned the kings before. Okay, that's yeah. one way to think about it. That's the, the other extreme, right? One person makes the decision for yeah. all. That's obviously bad. But then we have all the space in between where lots and lots of people say, well, no, we know that the king is bad. We know that Stalin was bad. But what if there's 50 of us? I was like, well, there's no different. Or how those 50 make the decision? Oh, how about democracy? It sounds great. Yes, it is in, to the, the degree that we need to make decisions in groups. That is a good enough system. We haven't found a better one, perhaps. <laughs> but that becomes very complicated. Competing interests, there's lots of, it's just not, yeah. there's no alternative that is clean and moral and ethical, actually, as, 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 as the one that put as much as possible decision-making power to the individual. It's a, it's a value that, that has, of course, some restrictions, right? Yes, yeah, some things we need to decide in groups, but accepting the fact that Whenever you move to a group, it becomes problematic in all sorts of other ways. I think gives you the notion that no, you need to put as much power in the hand of an individual as possible. And then you only go to the other way whenever needed. And I think that was understood very carefully in the framing of the American Constitution of the creation of this country. As much as possible in an individual or localities and so on, not as much in sort of any centralized government. And that has been moving slowly in the bad direction for 
over 200 years now, but it is, I think, the, the, the fundamental premise that if you think about that individual as a sovereign unit, you don't want to give, give away the power. I think in a way, that is the liberal and liberal democracy, right? The liberalism of Adam Smith and of the people that were giving birth philosophically to this Western right. modern era were saying, hey, individuals have dignity and they have agency and they have the right to make the choice for themselves, not the king, not the governor, not the, you know, not the collective, not, not the group. Right, not the group. One thing that in teaching economics, there's this tradition of teaching the, okay, let's teach you the fundamentals, the supply and demand, those things again, right? And then, oh, let's teach you now the situations in which the market, the supply and demand thing goes wrong. There's all this like, haha, see, we knew that we need a government. So let me show you all the ways in which, you know, this thing can go wrong and we might need government to intervene. And instead, the teaching should be like, no, 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 no. First of all, tell me the ways in which government intervened well. Can you find those first? <laughs> like in reality? Yes, in reality. Not right? on the blackboard. Exactly. I like to end every conversation on Dad Saves America with this question. How do you, um, as a person and as a father of two, think of your role in the American story? You know, we're storytellers here. You've just told a story of America. Right. How do you think of your role in this story? I think my role at this point, what I do for a living is to, is to maintain to reinvigorate that creed, to emphasize. And that creed comes in in the form of, I think what the scientific form here is not devoid from that creed, the American creed. My role is to make sure people understand how that creed connects to this and connects to all the goodness of the world. So I think that's, that's what I try to do, is make sure that people understand the value of our capitalist society, the system that allows people to dream as big as they want and do crazy things, and some of it works, some of it doesn't, and that's fine. The value of a system that brings immigrants from all over the world and reward them severely when they do something good here. From Elon Musk to... To, to, to Carlos. To, to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was welcome in this country. and It was the home from day one in, in weird ways. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think my role is to try to make sure people understand its greatness and emulate its greatness. I, w I wish Brazil was more like, more like America. I wish other countries are more like America, and, and I think there's a, a huge role of trying to scientifically pushing those ideas forward, and that's what I try to do. Thanks for coming on Dad Saves America, Carlos. Thank it's you, it's a pleasure. A, it's a pleasure, <laughs> as always, for me as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.